Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Hello and happy Friday. I hope that you have been enjoying your week. If you're in California, I'm so sorry for you. This heat wave has been ridiculous. I am personally really not enjoying it. I cannot wait to get into sweaters. I'm just not a summer girl. Um, I know I'm popping these episodes up fairly quickly, doing two a week. And I just wanted to address that really quickly because that isn't my forever plan. However, right now, as we are just sharing the book and I'm going through each chapter, I want to be able to just get those episodes out so you can listen to them at your leisure before we start diving into actual interviews where we really dive into deeper topics or, you know, even the same things that we cover in the book, but with other individuals. And once again, if you're interested in being interviewed or if you know someone that you think would just be great on the show, please email me at hello at andyfranklin.com. That's Andy with an I. And yeah, I'm just looking forward to hearing from you and hopefully having some really wonderful conversations on here. We're starting the weekend off with the second chapter of Love Unpacked, where I unpacked the very first thing to ever find its way into my bag. There is a decent amount of cussing in this book, so just so you're aware, there's profanity. If you're around your kids, you might not want to listen in front of them. And I also talk about abandonment, drug, and alcohol use in this episode, so just a heads up. This book touches on some pretty sensitive subjects, and while I always try to bring humor and lightness to it, it can also be really hard to listen to. So above all else, make sure you take care of yourself, and I will do my best to ensure that you are properly notified ahead of time of what to expect. Okay, that felt sufficient enough, so without further ado, thank you for spending your time with me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Chapter 2. Abandonment. Polly Pocket never had to deal with this shit. The sun does not abandon the moon to darkness. Brian A. McBride. Long ago, in the year 1994, the earth was overrun by skorts, sparkly jelly shoes, and brightly colored snap clips. It was a trip around the sun full of notable drama, heartbreak, and triumph. From Kurt Cobain's suicide to O.J. Simpson's arrest, to the release of Disney's The Lion King. The denim-on-denim crime rate was at an all-time high, and children everywhere were forced into the unthinkable torture of commercial breaks, with no option to pause, rewind, or save their favorite Rugrats episode for later. I was but a girl on the cusp of her seventh birthday. Not quite old enough for Are You Afraid of the Dark?, yet free to sing the verses of the number one boys to men hit, I'll Make Love to You, without so much as a blink from surrounding adults. My parents had divorced a few years back, so we made our entire conveyor belt child trade-offs at my mom's parents' house, where we lived on and off for a while. My brother Chris and I eagerly let the heavy metal screen door slam behind us that chilly October day, as we raced for a chance at shotgun in our dad Kevin's apple-red Toyota Tacoma. For reasons unbeknownst to me, 
we weren't getting our usual weekend with him, which meant we'd need to cram all of my birthday festivities into an eight-hour window of fun. In the rearview mirror, I saw our mom and stepdad Carl waving us off at the top of the cul-de-sac as we cruised onward toward our next set of grandparents' house. Billy Ray Cyrus sang Achy Breaky Heart on the radio as we cruised east on the 10 freeway. 25 minutes and two rights later, we came upon a modest home in Bloomington, California, with a chain-link fence around the property and a choir of wind chimes harmonizing in the soft breeze. The garage door seemed to stay permanently open at their house, with my grandpa Jim almost certainly inside fiddling with his boat and puffing cigars. He was a petite man, with a few thin strands of hair combed over the center of his glossy dome, prickly face whiskers, and the grease-stained hands of a mechanic. Loose gravel flew from underneath my heels as I sprinted toward him and called out, Grandpa! He let out a jolly, Hey, girl, in his fading Georgia accent, and held me tight, like he was unsure when he'd have the chance again. Inside, I found my grandma Pat slicing up cucumbers and hot dogs to serve for lunch with a generous helping of ranch dressing. She was a larger woman who only wore bright floral moo's, with a raspy smoker's voice and an affinity for pirating VHSs. I was her first granddaughter, and she was never shy about telling me how special that was to her. Get on over here, girl, and give your grandma a hug. She planted a wet kiss onto my lips, and I could taste the marble red linger in the air between us as I bolted to the small dining room table. It was decorated with a couple dazzling gift bags and an oversized store-bought cake with the words, Happy Birthday, Andy, piped in pink icing. Next to the cake sat a rectangular envelope addressed to me that I'd come to anticipate every holiday or birthday more than any other gift. Back then, gift cards had yet to make their debut, and their placeholders were these glossy paper certificates resembling money, with a thick store logo and dollar value displayed on its face. Grandma Pat was famous for gifting us a whole $25 worth of shiny goodness from Target, and we absolutely loved her for it. She was a sprightly woman with a childlike innocence that contradicted her hoarse tones, who accessorized her tan wool couch with battery-operated plush animals. She understood that kids at any age could be in charge of their own present destiny. I knew well before I tore the envelope what was inside that card, and I already had my heart set on the perfect purchase. A Polly Pocket Starlight Castle. On a typical visit, I'd creep down the L-shaped hallway to a small room with wall-to-wall VHSs labeled in my grandma's tiny scribbled handwriting, sliding my fingertips over each one as I read their title and marveling over her impressive cataloging. Instead, I couldn't wait to hop back into my dad's truck and make our way to Target with my newfound wealth to cash in on Polly's latest pocket surprise. Go give your grandparents hugs and kisses, and then we'll head out to use that gift certificate, okay? Dad ushered Chris and me to the arms of our grandma and grandpa for one last big hug and kiss before leading us through the flimsy plastic screen door, down the step, past the wind chimes, and over the uneven pavement. Shotgun! I demanded as I pushed the passenger seat forward to let Chris squeeze in behind me. My humble, introverted little brother didn't bother to protest, 
He was used to me beating him to the punch and rarely spoke out against it. I felt like a baby kangaroo in her mother's pouch on the 15-minute drive to bullseye paradise, bobbing to the motion of my racing pulse and defying gravity with each crack and bump in the road lifting my body from the seat. If children could spontaneously combust from excitement, I would have detonated the moment those double-wide sensor doors opened for me, blowing cool popcorn-scented air through my long auburn locks. I made a beeline for the toy department and shrieked with exhilaration as I shimmied a Polly Pocket Starlight Castle playset box off its hook and into my arms, embracing the packaging like a long-lost sister. Suspense pulsed through my eager fingertips as I marveled at the heart-shaped Pepto-Bismol pink castle. Princess Polly and her handsome Prince Casper were waiting for me inside, with their noble steed pulling a carriage fit for a Thumbelina-sized princess. The lake outside of their grand castle was graced with a removable swan. The courtyard and gazebo even lit up. Dad pointed out that with a price tag of only $9.99, I still had cash to spend. This decision would involve careful thought, consideration, research, and time, all of which I had zilch. We had to be returned to mom soon, so he came up with a brilliant solution. Why don't we get this now, and then we'll talk to your mom and see if I can pick you up Thursday to take you shopping for the rest, okay? Goodbye always punctured a vein in my heart. As my dad walked us up the steep driveway toward our mom, I mounted his left shoe like a carousel horse and snaked my arms around his shin, tightening my grip with each of his attempts to peel me off gently. Thursday was an eternity away, but my mom gently reminded me that I'd have him all to myself. Just daddy and his little girl combing the aisles of Target for the perfect $15 or less birthday present. Tears licked my cheeks as I watched that red Tacoma fade into the curve of the house-lined road. Thursday. I only had to wait until Thursday. The climb to Thursday felt like the slow clap scene in Cool Runnings, when the Jamaican bobsled team's leader, Darice, convinces the rest of his teammates that they must finish the Winter Olympics race after their gut-wrenching crash. The four men post up on all sides of their sled, and carry it over their shoulders to the end, giving one lucky audience member the perfect opportunity to initiate an epic slow clap sequence. I was like Darice carrying my sled to a banner that read Thursday, only my sled was actually a paper gift card with a little less than $15 left on it. Still, as each day passed, the clap grew stronger until finally it broke out into a roar on TGIF Eve. The crowds cheered and the trumpets played. I kissed little babies on their heads and said, No, you're the best, Carol! At passing strangers who gazed upon the success of my wait, I'd done it. I finally waited five full days, and now it was time to step on the podium and accept my award. My dad and I were going to light up the night in aisle E48, and Target wasn't prepared for the party we were about to ignite. Instead, the evening fell silent in the dimly lit dining room. My knees pressed against a chair cushion, forming grooved imprints from the pattern, 
and my arms draped over its back, clutching that $25 Target gift certificate as if it were my entry ticket to the pearly white gates. The peeled back curtains revealed a cul-de-sac full of cars that were in for the night, illuminated by streetlights and a hint of the moon trying to fight its way through the thick clouds. He'll be here. He'll be here. He promised he'd take me, so he'll be here. Eventually, I felt my mother's palm on my shoulder. Time to go to bed, sweetie. I'm sure he just got caught up. As it turned out, aisle E48 would never see Kevin Harrell and his daughter for that party. I had Polly, her pocket, and a little less than $15 left on that Target gift certificate. But I no longer had my dad. He and his red Toyota Tacoma were suddenly gone, without any note, phone call, or explanation. There was no goodbye. No, I'm sorry. No, I love you. He simply didn't exist in my life anymore overnight. It was as if he slipped out of this world, but somehow didn't die. Nobody talked about it. There were no calls to the police, no search parties, and no retracing steps to see if he could be located. As far as I knew, he disappeared entirely, and yet nobody seemed to be up in arms about it except for me. One day, I was strutting around the playground with my own theme music playing in my head, contemplating what to buy with my remaining birthday funds, and the next, I was a second grader obsessed with the idea that if her father left right before her birthday, it must have been because she did something wrong. It felt as though Kevin threw a wrench in those conveyor belt child trade-offs, deeming the product as defective and rendering his agreement null and void. When the dust settled and we all adjusted to life without joint custody, my mom revealed the darkness my dad had been fighting within himself. Alcohol and drugs were the poison in the well, and he'd plummeted all the way to the bottom. This news was meant to release me from the belief that I was to blame, but it hadn't. On the contrary, I wondered what I'd done wrong to make my father turn to these ailments. And so, at the tender age of seven, I began down my own path of darkness as the abandoned little girl left at baggage claim for someone else to handle. Unpacking Abandonment If I had a dollar for every person I've come across in my life with their own version of abandonment demons to fight off, I'd be writing this book on a yacht, sipping Cristal, and eating cocktail shrimp out of an 1897, hand-decorated, 24-karat gold platter from Syracuse. I'd have so much cash that I'd blast Benjamins into the ocean out of one of those air cannons and laugh wildly as they floated off into the sea forever. Parental abandonment is unfortunately about as ordinary as catching the common cold. But growing up, I didn't know that. Like most great pains, mine felt unique and unmatched. How could anybody in the world possibly know what it was like to go from being daddy's little girl to an old banana tossed in the trash? I became obsessed with the idea that I wasn't good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, worthy enough to be loved. I convinced myself that if I could find Kevin, I'd be whole again. I'd be worthy. I'd cry out to him and he would grovel at my feet and explain to me that it was all some big mistake. That he missed me and thought of me every single day. He became my own personal unicorn hunt, my quest, 
my top secret mission. I wanted to find him because I needed him to tell me that I was loved. His love would fix me. It broke me, and it was the only piece that could glue me back together again. I always thought my saga started a week before my seventh birthday, staring out that kitchen window in the house at the top of the street, with the curtains peeled back, streetlights on, and a cul-de-sac full of cars that were in for the night. Clutching a $25 Target gift certificate, and trying not to blink as I waited for the date with my dad that would never come. Maybe I've clung to this story as the moment for so long because it felt poetic and finite. In truth, my biological father had abandoned me long before he stopped physically showing up. It wasn't until I began unpacking my issues around abandonment that I became privy to it. Sometimes it's easier to cling to a slice than to confront the entire pie. And I'd been taking bites out of the same rotten piece for over 23 years before I finally noticed there were still seven more slices left untouched. The rest of the pie, the layers I'd yet to dig into, turned out to be even more rancid than the sliver I'd been consuming almost my entire life. When I started to write this book, I sent a rough draft of this chapter to the most gifted writer I know in real life, my best friend, Alwyn. We frequently bounce our work off one another, and I knew when she chose to wait to talk to me in person that what I'd written was crap. At coffee the following week, she offered her notes along with a question. What do you think this chapter is about, Andy? Her question took me off guard. Wasn't it obvious? She'd heard the story a million times in our 12-year friendship, so she already knew my answer to her question, which posed the real question. What am I missing? I know you think this chapter is about your dad leaving, but I think it's actually about how he never protected you, even before he left. Consequently, she was right. I'd been skimming the surface, licking the whipped cream off the top and saving the rest for another day. What I discovered when I began diving into the rest of the pie was that the overall truth remained the same, but my timeline was entirely off. Yes, my biological father abandoned us, but it happened long before he stopped physically showing up. Years before skorts, jelly shoes, and brightly colored snap clips were in style, Kevin Harrell had been falling short as a parental figure in my life. All the good memories I thought I had didn't actually involve anything good. In reality, there just wasn't anything terrible happening, so my brain logged them into the not-too-shabby folder. Once I became aware of this lost knowledge, everything started to make sense, and the core truth revealed itself. I was never daddy's little girl. Kevin is a complicated man. I won't pretend to know why he got into drugs and alcohol but I do know the effects on his children. I was no more than five years old when he first instructed me about what to do if I couldn't wake him up from one of his benders. Just shake me, and if that doesn't work, pour water over my face. No problem, Dad. I'm your big girl. I've got this. We had a close call once while my mom was at work. He filled a pot with water and placed it on the stove under high heat before disappearing into his bedroom. I was playing in my room with my Barbie dream house when I smelled something funny and walked out to investigate. Smoke filled the kitchen and I ran to get the only adult in the house. 
but Kevin had locked the door and wasn't responding to my pleas. I was four, and all I knew was that there was smoke everywhere, and I needed to protect my brother. I grabbed Chris, locked us both in my room, and started shoving puzzle pieces underneath the door to fill the cracks. I reasoned they'd keep the smoke from coming into the room, which, in retrospect, is some damn clever out-of-the-box thinking for a kid who couldn't even read yet. My mom walked in the house just in time to get the fire out before any severe damage was done, and I was proud of my efforts to hold down the fort until she got home to save the day. Honestly, all of the real memories I have of him are messed up in one way or another. He was either putting adult responsibilities on my tiny shoulders so he could get his high, or he was punishing me for existing by doing things like pouring hot sauce in my mouth and forcing me to stand in front of a full-length closet mirror and stare at myself until he determined I'd learn my lesson and could spew out the pooling spicy liquid. I stood ears length from him on several occasions where he'd disclaim me if he considered my actions to be unfavorable, passing me off to my mom like a problem he didn't have the energy to solve. He'd always exclaim, you really need to get a handle on your daughter, right in front of me. But I didn't realize the impact it had on me until I began unpacking my story of abandonment. Looking at the entire pie, it's clear to see why my father left such a profound mark on my own self-love and worth. There was a hole in my heart that was burning with each breath I took. Since I couldn't have his love, I set out on a journey to find it from any and every other male I could. I was looking for whatever I could to fill the gaping void inside of me, left by the man who never loved me enough to protect me, forgive me, walk through aisle E48 with me, or stay. There's an old Irish proverb traced back to R. Taverner that asserts, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. This is the sweet spot, the place where healing occurs. The devil I didn't know was the one engorging me and eclipsing behind this story of abandonment a week before my seventh birthday. Once I called my relationship with my father by its real name, my heart went through an exorcism. I started projectile vomiting memories and truths that ultimately exposed the demon that had been silently wreaking havoc on my soul. What I'm left with now that I've expelled all the bullshit is acceptance. Part of this comes with being a parent myself now and knowing that at two, four, six, or any other age, a child isn't to blame for the actions of their parents, nor should kids be treated the way I was. I etched expectations on myself I'd never put on my own children, and likewise, expected things from Kevin that I know I'll have to let my kids figure out for themselves. Parents can guide us, but they don't have an overwrite kill switch for our brains they can press if they want us to be someone or something else. I'd never find answers in my biological father, even if the fairy tale happened like I'd envisioned. All in all, he didn't possess the answers. But I did. Before I started unpacking my bag, this information would have felt like being stuck in an escape room, blind and by myself mostly because I wasn't ready to admit I'd been carrying the answer within me all along. It felt more comfortable to link up with the story of daddy's little girl turned abandoned child 
then admit he was never the father I thought he was. Leaning into this revelation revealed to me that his lack of involvement in my life was really a blessing, not a curse. I was saved from a front row seat of his unraveling. I didn't have to watch him slowly kill himself. I didn't have to experience police showing up at my home to arrest him on any of the many occasions he landed in jail over the years. Kevin's abandonment shielded me from the trauma that drug and alcohol abuse can lace into a family because I was entirely removed from it all. I was estranged from him. It wasn't a punishment for being an unlovable kid. It was a selfless act amid a series of selfish ones. Once I realized this accidental mercy, I didn't have an excuse not to look inward for the answers. It hurts when people don't live up to our expectations of them, especially when those people happen to be our parents. We're told that parents are the ones we should be able to depend on for any and everything, but that's simply not always the case. Before a parent becomes a mother or father, one is first a person. That person sometimes grows with a newfound responsibility of caring for a life beyond their own. But having sex and making babies isn't a guarantee that everyone will rise to the occasion of parenting. It takes grit, maturity, and a deep kind of love we can only tap into fully if we love ourselves first. Kevin clearly didn't love himself because he was hiding in the arms of cheap booze and locally cooked meth. So how could I expect him to love me any better? It's natural to be disappointed and hurt if your parent didn't love you the way you envisioned a parent should love their child. We all have a primitive response to feelings of rejection and abandonment that must be acknowledged. But we must also be willing to look at the entire pie. You can process your affliction while releasing the story you've attached to it. My big exhale was admitting to myself for myself that my biological father never really settled into his role as a dad. And that wasn't my fault. I couldn't control him. I couldn't make him show up for me. And I certainly couldn't make him love me. The truth is, I never needed him to in the first place. The love I was searching for wasn't inside of him. I may have dug out the very first item to make its way into my bag, but I was far from done yet. If I'd been spinning a tale of abandonment ruining my life, what else was I lying to myself about? It was time to discover my truth, so I kept rummaging through the tossed-out bag. There was still a lot more work to do, and shame was looming on the horizon. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble.